Right, so today I'm in Cambridge to meet the artist Rebecca Eilert. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Robert. And uh, thanks for agreeing to having this podcast chat with me today. Well, it's nice to have somebody in the studio so I can talk about what I do here and the sort of work that I'm making. Fantastic. And to paint a picture for my um, listeners, we are in a fantastic workshop space surrounded by all manner of silversmithing implements. Do you want to describe the general sense of the place? So it is my workshop. This is where I make most of my work. But it's also, more importantly, somewhere where I come up with ideas. So I've got lots of toys that I've squirreled away from when my children were small and I've got about 50 syrup tins. So when people come in here they say, you eat a lot of syrup. I don't eat a lot of syrup. I've just never thrown a syrup tin away ever. So I've got them all here and they've got pencils in. So I've created a rich environment so I can refer to all the things that do have a connection with my past. So I can use that as a as themes for work and as a sort of source of information. It is a collection. So I'm a maker and a curator, but more importantly, a storyteller. And... There is the tools of the trade for doing jewellery making, silversmithing and metalwork. Is that right? Would that be a fair place yes, to is. start? Yes, it is. So <clears throat> I have got all the tools here to make traditional silversmithing and jewellery. And I've got large engineers, vices and rolling mills So and also an area to do soldering. So it is like an old traditional workshop you know like you might have had at the back of your garden if your dad was an engineer say which mine was so I'm used to having an environment of tools and really interesting tools that you might not know what they're for and using them to create stuff I've always been surrounded by materials so I think I've created an area that's got lots of materials and lots of ideas. As I understand it although you work with uh, jewellery and metal workers as your uh, media as it were you don't consider yourself to be a jeweller as such is that right yes that is right so I, I sometimes call myself an artist who sometimes works with jewellery which is in many ways a ridiculous thing to try and define yourself but I sometimes feel that I have to say that because I don't seem to fit into any category so I don't feel as if I fit into the traditional jewellery world because actually I'm not really interested in producing jewellery that looks nice but doesn't have any other element to it. I'm not at all interested in that. I am interested in using jewellery as a way of displaying ideas and I think that that sort of crosses over into the fine art area but maybe I'm not allowed in fine art either. It's a broad church, though. I mean, um, recently, I would say that things like embroidery have become big in, in the fine art world. And are we just waiting for the jewellery moment? The kind of, con would you say, like a conceptual jeweller is a, or a, a, a jewellery artist? No, you're shaking your head. It's trying to find that place. And that, is it an intersection with fine art or is it just that you're kind of knocking on the door and you're not feeling allowed in? 
Do I want to go in the door? Don't know. <laughs> um, so do you, could you describe um, some of your work or some of your things that you've made and how they came to be? Well, so at the moment I am working on a series of objects that are, are not really jewellery. They, they can be worn. I've just made something that fits into a suit pocket which has got an element of kinetic movement in it and it's a row of little plastic hands and if you wind the handle that you know they wave up and down so i am interested in the humor of automata and i think i'm interested in trying to surprise an audience or creating a sense of awe a bit like a magician might you know i'm trying to create a bit of magic so it's got to be a really good trick otherwise it's not convincing for example, I made a little square necklace that the, it spins straw into gold. You know, from the well, from one of the fairy tales, which was um, Rumpelstiltskin, because that um, dwarf wants the miller to to spin a whole roomful of straw into gold, and of course she can't do it. So I, the idea of the piece of work that I made was that I could give the miller's daughter a little machine so she could get out of her predicament so i was making a machine and i wanted the viewer to actually believe that it would spin straw into gold so i had to make it i thought with an incredible amount of skill and with materials that would lend weight to the idea sort of playing with the ideas of the value to try and tell a lie in a way or to make something that everybody knows is not true into something that they would believe, you know, which is, has the parallel with the magic trick. And you recently went back to school to do your Masters, um, or maybe it was a little while ago. It was... 2019. So I graduated. I went to the London Met and did a part-time MA by project, which is a really good way of combining a practical MA with research. So what happened is I became very interested in tools and how people connect with tools and materials and what that feels like, what effect that has on the brain, you know, and really why people are compelled to make stuff, you know, because I know that part of this studio setup is that if I, if I'm not involved in making something, my existence is lesser for it. And I know that you do um, a lot of teaching and you, you teach jewellery and you have a number of students here in your studio workshop every so often. Is there any crossover or any overlap between your work as an artist and your work as a teacher? So I think there is an overlap. If I'm um, doing research on how people make things and why people make things and how they might approach they're making. I can see how other people approach problem solving and contact with materials and that is useful because it feeds back into me thinking about why people make things you know and how what influence it has on their well-being and you know all the other things that are going on in their lives. You know it's a lot about psychology because you know I meet students who want to produce brilliant things immediately without putting the work in or people who want to make the minimum effort and want to make something that looks absolutely amazing. And we all know that that doesn't really happen. 
you know, in jewellery, if you think about the apprenticeship, people are training for years and years and years. And if you look at traditional jewellery and silversmithing, you might have someone who is just involved in one very small area of jewellery, say polishing. Someone might be a polisher and only consider themselves proficient after 40 years. Wow. Um, so your students who want a shortcut or want a quick answer, how do you respond? Um, well, I, I would demonstrate a skill and then say, yes, it, it requires practice. And then point out that the result, the end result can look like this if you spend a minimum amount of effort in it. But if you then spend more time on it, it depends what your idea of perfection is. You know, I know what mine is. Mine is a destructive perfectionism that stops you creating things and gets in the way and makes you take ages to make a piece of work and then you will cut it up and make it again. A destructive perfectionism? Yes. So, so what you mean that you, you're not satisfied with anything short of... Uh, what you consider to be acceptable? Yes. Yes, it's a sabotage, isn't it? They do say that, don't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, so, so, no, I mean, that doesn't always happen, obviously. You have to let a piece of work go and say, well, yes, I've spent so long on that, I'm absolutely sick of the side of it. It's got to be moving on. Otherwise, there is no sense of movement. Yes, and I used to work with somebody who who used to say that perfection is the enemy of the good. And I never quite understood that because I thought, well, if something's good, well, why would you not want it to be better? You know, why why not crack on till till you get to perfect? And then after a while, I realised the penny dropped that what she meant by that was that you just end up beating your head against a brick wall, just trying to get to attain the impossible. Or rather, good can be good enough. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. You're making things that are good enough. And and that is where um where ideas and materials meet. You have to have a good idea of the balance between what you're trying to say and how you've said it. And, you know, actually perfectionism might not be the thing that's required at any moment. Can you tell me a little bit about your ideas, your storytelling, the myth-making, all the fairy tale ideas that you're interested in? So um, a lot of my ideas come from books. So I am an avid reader. And as I said before, I've got a lot of toys that my children think I threw away years ago, but I didn't. I just kept them all. And you can see various bits of broken toys up there. So I am interested in toys and play as a, as a theme through my work just because there's a lot of imagery in that. And if you think about nursery rhymes and fairy tales, they've got stories that seem very simple, but actually they often have a sinister element or a sense of unfairness that I'm almost trying to put right. And I think that that's why I've got lots of dolls, because I really don't understand the idea of how they work in terms of sort of toys for children. It always seems rather bizarre that you give babies to very young children. Is it a practice? Is it sort of a domestic involvement that might give them some insight later on? You know, there's all sorts of questions about childhood and, you know, what you give children to play with and what the effect is. So, I mean, I always hated dolls because <laughs> <laughs> I never liked the games, but I think they're interesting because actually they're quite scary, aren't they? I mean, if you look at all those dolls up there, 
some of them are utterly terrifying. <laughs> and in the box in the corner, I've got one of those old 50s mechanisms from when a doll lies down, their eyes shut, and then they spring open. But if you look inside the head, that mechanism is also a terrifying contraption, you know, which I quite like, because actually a doll is supposed to provide some ideas of comfort and being a friendly presence, but actually, and you know, in all the old the horror films to do with dolls, they're always sinister and evil. You know, so I like the juxtaposition of what's being presented and how it fits in. Well, and also I think maybe that, plays out through your choice of silver and jewellery as a medium because on the one hand it's this alluring thing that gives beauty and adornment and value and all of those things and then you replace it or you put in that place things that are challenging, things that are, yes. can be sinister, that can undermine that sense of security. Yes, yes that's that's true and um. That makes me think of that necklace that I made that said very stupid, very ugly on it. And when I, w when I was showing that to this woman, she said, well, that's, that's possibly the worst thing I've ever heard. Why would you put that on a necklace? But it's about um, challenging perceptions. And um, I don't wear jewellery because I don't necessarily want to draw attention to myself. But I recognise, you know, the body as a vehicle for being able to display stuff. And I think that's an interesting idea. And that very stupid, very ugly was again relating to a fairy story, Beauty and the Beast. So you had a necklace and you had in this beautiful lettering that you had uh, made. Cut out, hand cut out. Hand cut out, very, very stupid, very ugly, um, so that it would adorn your neckline. Was it then something that you would just show or would you actually... Well, actually, I... I um showed that not as a worn piece I put it in a in a plinth so I've got these books the Ladybird 606 series you know which played a hugely influential part of my childhood because the illustrations are really well I thought as a child they were brilliant having looked at them as an adult they're not quite as good but they're still pretty magical so I think I took as the influence from the that book a more formal setting so I put it in a like a plinth and then put it on a book so it was like a sort of mini installation and what I wanted the viewer to question was who's the good one in that story and who's the one that's not as good you know because it always seemed to me that beauty was rather judgmental obviously because the beast was a beast and not a you know not a person so that is an interesting story in itself, isn't it? Because it's about appearances and judge, judgments, you know, which is a really interesting thing. Definitely, definitely. Um, and yes, as you say, the whole, the whole concept of jewellery as adornment and, and the whole beauty industry and the approach to making oneself more beautiful. I think that's a great place to be exploring and great ideas in there and, and the idea of the as the wearer as a kind of a, almost a, a walking art performance yes. piece or a, or a site of of an artistic intervention almost yes i think that's interesting also because obviously it takes art to wherever it's being worn you know when you can have conversations with people just by wearing something or if they can read something that you're wearing 
Well, I think what's interesting also is that you're taking something that is traditionally being considered a craft and you've talked about the skill and the, the time involved in, in learning the trade, but then you're using that to be an ex more expressive over and above um, just that sense of craft and, and beauty to challenge ideas and to um, push it in different directions. I think so, and that has reminded me that there is a there seems to be a conflict between jewellery as a functioning, non-functioning object. I mean, it has a place to do with how you dress, you know, and that's fine from my point of view, but it, that does have a limitation. And if it's made incredibly well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it either has value or that it's a beautiful thing. Because there are a lot of traditional jewellers who make things that are ghastly. What, intentionally ghastly or just... Well, maybe, you know, <laughs> there is a sort of, um, not a an artistic bravado, but you can pile precious materials on precious materials. You can go massively over the top with materials that you know are valuable to create a sense of awe. But um, it depends how you put them all together, doesn't it? You know, that's still going to be something that's visually terrible. Or, you know, has a an aesthetic that I don't necessarily value. Or that topples over into kitsch or... Well, exactly, yes. So, I mean, it, uh, I mean, I think even that is very interesting. If I was just going to call myself a jeweller, I would be limiting myself in terms of why I want to make stuff. You know, because it isn't about the end result, is it? It's about exploring a series of ideas. You know, and that's something that I'm doing all the time. And why I need all these props. You know, even the... Um, all those empty tins used as pencil holders. You know, there's something really nice about creating the order and symmetry. That no. if you'd met me, you might not think that I was necessarily interested in because I am really quite messy. But in here, I can categorise everything and put it in order. Not just because that's a really good practical way of not wasting your own time. And I have lost things in here that I've never found but I quite like it in terms of being like an installation. It, it, it is a wonderful place. It is quite a magical place, actually. There's a, there's a real sense of potency and potential. And, you know, you, you can feel that kind of creative energy in the place. It really, is, it really is magical in that regard. Well, that might be a perfect point at which to pause and yes. have a cup of tea. Yes, brilliant. Perfect. Right, so we are back after a cup of tea for me and a cup of tea for you. Yes. And not one but two of yesterday's caramel <laughs> slices. Yes. Caramel all, squares. All the better for being kept in a very warm environment. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, but like almost like a pure sugar hit. A pure sugar hit. Yeah. So we are ready to resume. And what I wanted to talk to you about was your interest in the metaverse. And it was just 
really intriguing to me that um, you have your very hands-on, very practical, very, dare I say, craft-based practice with the, the metalwork and your interest in how that translates into the metaverse and where things are going digitally. Would you like to say a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I am thinking about the metaverse and what potentially it could do for making. So uh, my interest is in making skills and this is something I started when I was doing my MA because I was looking at tools and how how contact with different tools and different materials affect how you made something. So this is all about making as the experience, not necessarily making as the result. I'm interested in preserving traditional skills and people who can produce very detailed, very skilled work. How would that be replicated or improved or enhanced? How would that work in virtual reality? I mean, do you think of making stuff with your 3D virtual reality headset on and doing it in the metaverse in the future? I can see that as you create something in the workshop, so an example would be raising a bowl, with um, which is a traditional silversmithing method. So you get a piece of flat sheet and then you hit it against a stake with a hammer until it produces a bowl shape. So every hammer blow forces the metal to take on a different shape. I can see that you could very easily recreate that in a virtual reality setting. Okay, so spell it out for me, because when you say you could very easily recreate that, presumably there would be no physical metal thing coming out at the end? or No, there could wouldn't. You, could but, you, um, you, may, you may be able to hook it up to a Well, you may, yes, you might be physical... able to, in the same way as you can 3D print. Maybe this is a an add-on for that would be, that yes, you could have something that was produced magically at the end, which replicated exactly your treatment of the materials virtually. I mean, that would be really interesting. You know, I'm sure that's possible. And it's interesting you talk about feedback, because feedback is something that, you know, I'm actually interested in, in terms of making, but also something that appears in the virtual reality world. You know, they talk about feedback when you get vibrations and information from the handsets. You know, so in that way, that those things are comparable. If you made something in the metaverse, would it, would you feel the same about it as something you'd created? You know, I don't have any of the answers, but I, I quite like to find out. Yeah, I think that's where I'm kind of slightly struggling myself at the moment, exactly how it, what the metaverse brings to the party and why you would give up your physical, tangible immediacy of making and doing and, and seeing the response, you know, in real time in front of you for putting on a clunky headset, okay, it might get less clunky, and then going into a virtual world and trying to then recreate the whole of that and I'm thinking, hmm, yeah, where's, where does that go? But we don't know, we do don't we? Know. we? The don't thing know. is, we don't know. And you talk about it as if you, by doing one, you've lost the other. But, you know, maybe if there's more of an interaction between the two, there are huge benefits to be gained from the potential of the metaverse. You know, I really value developing hand skills and people being able to master the materials that they have to hand. But 
not everybody is able to do that or have that. So if I was just thinking about myself, I am thinking that that way of working might not suit me because it's not a way that I'm familiar with working. So, I mean, I have a, I don't have a prejudice against it because I'm trying not to have, I'm trying to think about scenarios where the metaverse would inform making. So they would sort of operate as a parallel where there isn't anything to be given up. Because I think that that's when it becomes sinister, you know, to assume that there's a trade-off by doing one, you can't do the other. So it's embracing the potentiality or at least exploring the potentials for the new technology and how that fits into existing skills and practices. Which I think is sort of where we're at now, isn't it, with 3D printing and producing work in materials where you have less direct contact. Where does your ownership or investment in that stop? We're thinking about all these questions already anyway, you know, and we always have. If you think about Renaissance painting, they weren't all produced by the same person, you know. They were thinking about how the result is best achieved by whatever vehicle. And I think that is where thinking about virtual making might be really interesting. And of course, we are restricted by all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things in the workshop, like gravity and materials and all sorts of things, even cost. So I would imagine that working in um, unreality, unreality, would take away a lot of the barriers that, you know, we obviously have. And it might be an opportunity to forget about reality and do something that's far beyond what we can imagine. Yeah, I remember when I put on some headsets for augmented reality and so on, it's actually a, an incredibly amazing experience and it can be a really, a real wow moment. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the technology can be absolutely stunning. In a way, it's a much better version of reality. There's no dirt, nothing's broken, everything's bright. You know, it's sort of um, enhancing in a way that reality isn't. So what is it that's so brilliant about reality that we're afraid of giving it up? Well, maybe it's because it's an, an essential part of who, who we who are, we are yes. and actually that it's, it's quite intangible as to why it's so important. I mean, it'd be like living in a box the whole time. So you, you've just reminded me about one of the things that I think is not so good. So, I mean, and it, the perfect example of you're sitting in my workshop and all of the stuff as I've put together and I've created, it's all out of my individual brain. Everything in virtual reality is not out of your own brain. You're sort of reacting to somebody else's input, where if there was a platform where you could input everything that you're inputting in real life, that's where it's interesting because you're you're reacting to someone else's reality, whereas you want to hang on to your own. So you want to kind of upload your own environment yes, and then play in there. Yes, that should be possible, shouldn't it? I think it should, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah, you've just reminded me of that, that you'd have to have everything in it and then you could select, but it's like writing, isn't it, that those images have come from one person's experience and individual brain 
So maybe that is the problem with it. Well, certainly I think there's the dynamic of who's in charge, you know, and and to what extent we are genuinely free agents in there because, you know, it is being offered to us by a, you know, global corporate tech giant and they're not going to be neutral players in this. They're not just going to be providing us a neutral platform. No. So I think there's definitely that element that needs to be carefully thought through. And the other thing is that it is intriguing because on the one hand, yeah, I I could imagine you some years from now uploading this whole fantastic workshop into the metaverse, but I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well, why do you need to? It's just perfect as it is. You know, I can touch everything. And even if you can replicate it, okay, the metaverse, you'll be able to touch everything and smell everything and see everything in just the same way. But I'm already doing that now. So where's the value add? Well, so we're doing this now, but we're just two people in this workshop. You know, you could open it out to other people. And I could have a um, the experience of being in someone else's environment without actually being there. I think that's exciting. Whether it would be as good as actually being there. You know, we might have to start talking about... Walter Benjamin, and that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Walter Benjamin is banned from this podcast. <laughs> Although, having said that, I think one of my other podcasts in this little mini series of, of episodes does also mention Walter Benjamin, so there is precedent there. So, you, well, you the, can mention him if you would like it's to. It's that thing of the awe of being in the presence of the actual thing rather than it being replicated. The aura. Of the the ori- aura, and then it loses yeah. its magic, doesn't it? Yes, he talks about, for example, I think is it the Mona Lisa or something, and, and being in the presence yes. of it as opposed to... And not only being in the presence of it, but having to physically yes. make a journey. Yeah. So it might take you several days to get there. And so over that period of several days, you're building up the excitement and the an- anticipation. So then finally you see yes. it, and you've got that limited time with it, and then you move on. Okay, with the example of the Mona Lisa, then there's all the, the problem of the scrum and the crowds and so on. But in, in principle, you've got that limited access, which makes it more precious and more singular. Yes, I mean, so he's talking about your sort of experience of encountering something authentic isn't he that's what he talks about yes an authentic object exactly as opposed to the postcard exactly or the or the metaverse yes so it might be that it might be a case of that yes and i think that is potentially the the unresolved element for me in all of this is that to what extent we as animals as it were how much we are grounded in a need for the physical the genuinely physical and to what extent we can abstract ourselves into a a simulacrum a, a simulation and be genuinely as comfortable in a digital environment to what extent we need that grounding Well, I mean, I would say that I absolutely do need it, you know, because it is one element of being able to put things together, isn't it? You know, you've got something going on up there in your imagination and then, you know, it translates directly into your contact with tools and materials. You know, I don't know how, whether that process could be produced in a better way than it already is. is. You're right. And I thought you were going to say it's one element of us being human. It's kind of something that's non-negotiable. We can, we, you know, we can't, we can't do without it completely. 
So, um, well, we shall see. I mean, maybe we'll turn into these disembodied thinking silicon wafers in the, in the inter- interweb. <laughs> that doesn't sound very appealing, I have to say. Well, nobody. It, remi- it reminds me of these things about, um, you know, are we living in a simulation? You know, because if we ever ended up moving a hundred percent into the metaverse, then we would effectively be living in a in a simulation, wouldn't we? We are. Well, are we already? We might already. That's be. what you already said. Well, it's a good one, though, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that takes us. We circle back round to. So why do you want to make another one? Well, I don't know if I do. No. You know, I'm just thinking about the you know the potential you know because actually the parallel is with literature is all those things are not based on reality necessarily you know it's they're based on things from people's imaginations you know there might computers might be able to do it better i am being a devil's advocate here because i'm pretty sure that that's not the case you know but i'd like to be proved wrong no, well, I think, well, two things. I think it's, it's admirable that you've got that open-minded, you know, inquiry, particularly from, I say, your practice of, of a very physical, ha- literally hands-on practice to be exploring how that may or may not translate into the digital world. But also, as I was, as I was driving over here and I was thinking about uh, the metaverse, and you mentioned literature, I think that's a, a really great example. It's almost like a proto metaverse. People are, as authors, creating through fiction these alternative worlds. And when we read, when we inhabit them, our minds almost do literally go into those worlds. And also, every mind that reads it will be creating a different one. This is the maybe one of the pitfalls of anything that's created for you, is that it's going to be just one version of it prescriptive yes 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 well i think that's going to be something that be be fascinating to see how that plays out so have you got any plans to carry this inquiry forward you're mentioning you you'd you'd love to have a conversation with adobe maybe about making in in a digital environment what what are your thoughts going forward so i would like to see if i could set up a real making experiment and digital making platform to see if there were parallels and how they would both play out. So are you optimistic for the digital future? I'd like to say yes, but I'm not sure that I can. And all just because of some of the things that you mentioned before, which have to do with, you know, who's running it, because actually one of the brilliant things about being an artist is that um, you're in charge of your own environment, you know, and to willingly put yourself in a position where you're not would seem a bit mad, wouldn't it? Well, we shall see how that plays <laughs> out. And uh, it'll be uh, maybe in five years' time, I'll be putting on my headset and I can uh, visit your workshop remotely from the comfort of my own home and uh, see see all of this lovely space uploaded yes to the metaverse well this has been fascinating to hear all about you your work to visit your workshop and studio and to see how these ideas may or may not transfer and translate into the metaverse 
to infinity and beyond. Yes, indeed. And so thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Well, it's been very good talking about some of the ideas that only swim around my own head, because putting them in reality develops them as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.